when you read through things like the church fathers and you come across the truth, it's the truth because it's the consensus of the church, not because it's what John Chrysostom said, you know, even though St. John is St. John, it's, it rings true and it hangs together with the rest of what the Orthodox Church teaches. Okay, welcome everyone to the Orthodox Christian Podcast, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Father Ryan Bishop, and for everyone watching or listening, Father Ryan, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself and tell everyone what you spend your time doing. All right, uh, my name is Father Ryan Bishop. I am the second priest at St. Herman of Alaska Orthodox Church in Edmonton, Alberta. I've only been here for about two months. I recently came from a small town in northern Saskatchewan called Meadow Lake. Uh, my intention in coming to Edmonton is to begin a new mission on the south side of the city. And so I'm spending a year in St. Herman's preparing to do that. So uh, what do I spend my time doing besides work, which I don't want to bore you with? Uh, I have three children ages 13, 10, and 7, so they keep me very busy. Uh, I love to read. I read all kinds of different things, fiction, nonfiction, you name it. And I love to write poetry. And actually, my brother Stephen and I uh, have a very uh, strong love affair with hard post. And so we like to write letters and poems back and forth to each other. So Ah, ah, hard post as in like actual physical letters that you're sending. Real mail, real mail. Yeah. What a novelty. It's amazing. Yes. So um, were you, did you go over to Edmonton of your own accord or was it uh, with the, the diocese that you're, that you're serving with that kind of sent you over there? Uh, the, how does that work? I mean, essentially it was a number of factors that coalesced. Um, the, priest at St. Herman's was looking for a solution to an overcrowding problem. And we were, they were looking to start a mission, another mission in Edmonton anyway. And they were looking for a young priest who is seminary trained, who was also a convert from evangelicalism, which I am. And so I ticked all the boxes and he approached me and the bishop said, this is a good idea. And so I agreed, and the rest is history. So we're, we're not moved around like, uh, like you hear in perhaps the Roman Catholic Church where, you know, they're given, you know, you have two months, get uh, everything in order, and then we're going to move you to this place. It's, it's much more collaborative in the Orthodox mm. Church. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so how did you uh, first come across the Orthodox Church? Because from what I know, you were not raised in it. You just mentioned evangelicalism. So just walk us through um, what church life looked like um, when you were growing up at, in home setting, but also uh, the corporate worship setting. Sure. Uh, so my parents have interesting religious backgrounds. My father was raised Roman Catholic and my mother was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist. When they became uh, involved with each other, uh, my dad converted to Seventh-day Adventism and they then raised us in the church for a number of years. I can remember getting up really early every Saturday morning. We drive an hour away to the closest Seventh-day Adventist church and we'd have Sunday school, we'd have church, 
and the rest of it, and then we'd come home. Um, I probably attended the Seventh-day Adventist church until I was 10. And then for a while, we didn't attend church anywhere. Uh, and then when I crept into my teen years, we began attending a Mennonite church in Meadow Lake, where I'm from. And uh, I became really involved with the church, with the youth group, with uh, uh, getting connected, you know, in all those circles. And I eventually decided that I wanted to go to school to become a pastor. Um, so it, it was interesting growing up in that sort of milieu, that mixture of things where, you know, one half of my family was Catholic, one half was Seventh-day Adventist. Um, it was a very, there was never any friction, but it was all, always very interesting to see how things interacted. And for Seventh-day Adventism, I don't know a lot about it. I know that it kind of emerged out of the same environment as the Jehovah's Witnesses and even Mormonism, or at least in the same time period. And some of the people are kind of mixing around. So maybe if you can walk us through what sets it apart and um, defines it. Seventh-day Adventism, sure. It, it comes out of what are known as the Millerite movements which were from, I think they centered in Pennsylvania in the mid-19th century. And they come from a very proud tradition of strong prophetic ministry. Uh, and a lot of them were based on these kind of uh, uh, end time, uh, I, I don't know what you would call it, a frenzy. You know, Jesus is coming back soon. Uh, many of them made prophecies with hard dates. Those dates came and, and went. And of course, the Lord tarried. And uh, uh, you get various splits off in different directions. And the Seventh-day Adventists are one of those groups. So while being a very interesting and unique church, they are, I would still consider them part of the Christian church, unlike Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or, or something like that. So and then they, I assume, take some of the Old Testament commandments quite literally. I mean, Saturday is the Sabbath, and so it, it's not absurd yes. to gather on a Saturday. It's just that as Christians, we believe that Christ resurrected on Sunday, and it is sort of the eighth day, and you have these That's this rearrangement of time that occurs in Christianity. But um, is it because they're very stringent about some of the Old Testament laws in Seventh-day Adventism? Yes. Yes, and depending on which branch you're in, and, and we won't get into that because it's complicated and boring for some, probably for some folks. Uh, yes, the Sabbath is holy and they keep it as, as such. Um, they do not follow the rest of the church into switching worship to Sunday, which is the Lord's Day, celebrating the resurrection. Uh, they also lean heavily upon Jewish dietary restrictions. So many of my... Uh, Friends who are Seventh-day Adventists don't eat meat. Some of them don't eat pork. Many of them, uh, are similarly to uh, Mormons, don't consume caffeine. Definitely no alcohol, no tobacco. Uh, they're very, very uh, stringent with their diet. And, and it reflects not completely accurately with the, the uh, Jewish dietary laws very close. Right, so. right. 
Yeah, I imagine yeah. that there's some American prohibition that's being mixed in there as well. Uh, so yes. you were raised in that until until you're 10, and then you wanted to become a pastor and, and lead us away. How did you uh, eventually end up in the Orthodox Church? Oh, goodness. There were, you know, looking back on it, there are there were a number of places where Christ and his church interjected themselves into my life. Um, the first one would be while I was a student at Columbia Bible College in Abbotsford, BC, which is a Mennonite school. Uh, in my third year there, I took a class called Classics in Religious Literature and uh, with a wonderful professor, Irv Clausen. He took us through uh, all kinds of books. We read Augustine, we read Teresa of Avila, we read John uh, John Bunyan, we read uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, we read, oh, who else did we read? Dante. Uh, anyway, Dante, yeah, we read The Inferno. And one of the books we read was The Way of a Pilgrim, which was my introduction to orthodoxy. I'd never encountered anything, any information, any nothing. I, I was a blank canvas. And so I read through that book and I was struck by how a church could claim to have as one of its aims praying ceaselessly. I was, I was astonished by that. And uh, so that began uh, a great curiosity in me to explore the Eastern Christian tradition. And it, it, it was more of a hobby. I was in, I guess you could call me an Orientalist. I, uh, I was fascinated by liturgy, candles, icons, uh, sacred music, um, things that we didn't have in the modern evangelical world that I was immersed in. Um, and so that, that kind of lay, uh, planted a seed in me. Uh, the next year, I went on a missions trip to Romania. I, was a, I served as a chaperone for a, a group of high school students um, from the church that I was working at. And we went to, uh, flew into Bucharest and took a train to Constanta. And our purpose there was to assist an evangelical mission in proselytizing Orthodox Christians. So uh, <laughs> the joke was on them. It didn't really backfire. <laughs> um, uh, but that was my first experience with Orthodox worship, walking into these ancient, ancient churches in Romania that were covered with icons inside and out, you know, gold and incense and people in black dresses and uh, the chanting of Romanian chant is beautiful. And uh, uh, I remember walking into these places, you know, with the, with the intent of talking to people and, and converting them, turning them away from the Orthodox Church. And, and being struck by the beauty and the reverence and the holiness and uh, just sitting in the back and taking it all in. You know, it, it was like drinking from a fire hose. There was so much going on. And uh, so my experience in Romania really confirmed in me that I needed something else, something that I wasn't getting in the Mennonite church. And... Uh, I really think that, that that trip to Romania was the thing. It was the nail in the coffin. It was, that was it. Something okay. after that. Okay. So so just to summarize, raised in the Seventh-day Adventist church, moved to Meadow Lake, started going to a Mennonite church, 
um, family is hailing from sort of Roman Catholicism and Seventh-day Adventism, but uh, go to the Mennonite church and you want to become a pastor. And then, so for college, you go over to Abbotsford, British Columbia, Columbia Bible College. You're there for four years to get your degree, I'm assuming. And in the mm -hmm. uh, third year, you take this religious literature class that exposes you to a bunch of different ancient texts, one of which is the way of the pilgrim, which you find really intriguing and fascinating. But sounds like you didn't make more of it at that time. It was just sort of this intriguing thing. And then uh, for your internship or part of the work you were completing as a pastor, you go to Romania, encounter the Orthodox Church, and in the process of trying to convert them, they convert you, um, not in an explicit way, but maybe just by being who they are. So is it at that time that you cease being a patch pastor? I mean, what, what does this transformation look like in your life? That was, that was a difficult time. Uh, I, I graduated from college that year and I got married to my lovely wife that in, in May, I graduated in April, got married in May and we moved to North Vancouver and she began her work as a paramedic. And I took a gap year because for various reasons, I was burned out. I was angry. I was lacking, sorely lacking something. And I, I didn't know what, and I, I being a, kind of a lost soul, I, I took a year or two to work. And it was during this time that my friend, Andrew invited me to this church. At the time I had been church hopping, going to Presbyterian, Anglican, United, uh, anything, anything you could think of. I was going one Sunday at a church just to see what was going on, what was out there. And he said, come to this church. It's wild. I said, okay, why not? So we went uh, uh, to St. Herman of Alaska Orthodox Church in Langley, British Columbia. And that day, it was January 7th. Uh, 2007. I remember it like it was yesterday. That was the single most transformative moment of my life was walking in to that church. Um, I, I, I stood there for liturgy. I, I like, I don't even know how to describe this. It, uh, I stood there for the divine liturgy. I, I took it all in and I was sitting in the, in uh, the lunchroom at coffee hour and I had a bunch of people sitting around me, people my age, and they were, you know, asking me questions and making small talk. And it, it was very nice. And one of them leaned over and said, so what did you think? And I, I kind of sat there for a moment and I, I looked at him and I said, I don't think I can go to church anywhere else. And, and they all laughed probably because they'd heard it before. But uh, truly, I, I, I came to the realization then that this is what church is supposed to be like. It just, I knew innately that this is what church is supposed to be like. Uh, so at that moment, my aspirations of being a pastor kind of vaporized. You know, I, I still felt a calling to ministry, but my wife said, you know, being a priest is much different than being a pastor. And uh, I don't think that that's what you should do. So that pretty much cleared that up for okay. a while anyway. 
Well, and an interesting story too, because if you encounter orthodoxy in this very persuasive manner at St. Herman, Alaska in Langley, the rector head priest there is um, Father Lawrence Farley, who I believe previously was an Anglican in Meadow Lake. So there's this nice yes. continuity there for years. There is a frightening amount. And so um, obviously you did eventually become a priest and, and maybe I can save this question for later, but I am kind of curious. You, meant, you mentioned that being a pastor is different than being a priest and, and I've heard that before. How would you articulate the difference between being a pastor in a Protestant setting versus a priest at an Orthodox church? Okay, that is a complicated question, and I will preface it by saying that in no way do I mean any of this disparagingly. I have, I know many Protestant ministers, pastors, who I hold in the highest regard. They are true ministers of God, and I do not cast aspersions on their ministry at all. But there are fundamental differences in the character of being a pastor and being a priest. Uh, the first of which I think, and the most importantly, is that as a priest, you have a sacrificial role in two ways. One is to offer the sacrifice at the liturgy, which is completely different from leading a Protestant worship service. So you are engaged in something that is timeless and eternal and immaterial, and uh, that takes a toll on you, spiritually speaking. The other way is that you are expendable. In, and in that I mean, when you minister to people as a priest, you are there literally to feed them with yourself. I remember being interviewed uh, before I went to seminary. I was interviewed by a panel of uh, lay people and clergy and, and all kinds of, and they were, they were psychologically evaluating me to see whether or not I would be a good clergyman. And one of the priests said, you have to be ready to be consumed. And I kind of, I sat there and I looked at him and he must've known that I was confused about that. And he said, you will feed these people with your body and your soul. They will eat you. They will consume you. And I, I thought that was a weird thing to have said. And then when I started to do this work, I understood that, that there's a reality there that goes beyond punching a clock. It goes beyond, you know, always having your phone on or always praying for people or always uh, being available or, you know, all, all the things that all good Christian ministers do in whatever tradition they're in. To be a priest is to be a sacrifice. And as a priest, how do you sort of calibrate being a sacrifice over the long term and maintaining a certain level of sanity versus giving everything at once and becoming a martyr? That has to do with prayer life. Mm. And uh, I came to the realization early on in my priesthood that if I, if I wanted to climb a mountain, who am I going to ask to take me there? I'm going to ask a Sherpa. 
you know, someone who's a local, someone who lives there, someone who knows the paths, someone who knows what the weather patterns mean, someone who is not going to get me killed. And as a guide, spiritually speaking, to the people who trust me, I need to know where I'm going. I can't lead someone where I don't know the roads. And so in order for me to sustain myself in this work, I have to be vigilant in my spiritual life. I have to be praying. I have to be reading. I have to take time for silence and solitude. I have to uh, go to confession regularly. I have to, I have to maintain, I essentially have to do all the things I'm telling my people to do, but I have to be much more vigilant and much better at them than they do. Right. It's kind of like, I wouldn't ask someone who wasn't as good at me at the, at piano to teach me piano. I want someone who's better than me. And so not that I'm better than anyone, but my job dictates that I need to be dedicated. And so that's, I think that's what keeps us together in the long term, is, is a prayerful existence. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you could summarize, what were the reasons that you joined Orthodoxy? Uh, well, what, what would you like, like, uh, what was immediately captivating or what kept me there or kind of just everything? Yeah, all of the above. I think it's interesting to see, uh, what initially may have drawn you in and then what has emerged over time to sustain you. Okay. So I would say that the two things that immediately drew me in were the promise of continuity in that this was really an apostolic endeavor and that it was poetically cohesive, uh, meaning when I went to the liturgy, it made sense. Not that I understood everything that was happening, but it made sense on a metaphysical level. When you go to a movie, uh, let's say you go to see The Lord of the Rings for the first time, you don't have Peter Jackson narrating, and now the hobbits are going to go here, and now we're going to fight Sauron, and now, you know, like, that's not what happens. It just, you sit in the movie theater and you watch it happen, and it all makes sense, and it's beautiful, and it blows you away. And to me, that doesn't happen in a Protestant church. You come in and you listen to some rowdy music and you then someone comes on stage and says, OK, now we're going to pray. So then you pray. Now we're going to hear a message. Then the pastor comes on and gives the message. Now we're going to have a closing song like they actually literally narrate it. And when I went to the Orthodox Church, they have a poetic language that is so fluid and fluent that you get lost in the liturgy. You know, you show up and from blessed is the kingdom to the final amen, you are lost. It's almost like I've never I've never been on a psychedelic trip, but I can imagine the kind of spiritual content being similar. The experience of, of just being caught up in a rhapsodic sort of trance. So th those were the two things, the, the cohesiveness the poetic cohesiveness and the continuity. Okay. Um, 
what kept me in the church was the promise of a spiritual life, spiritual growth. Um, I've heard I've heard Father Andrew Stephen Damick talk about this. I think it was Father Andrew Stephen Damick talk about how the church has every single piece of equipment you could need to progress in your spiritual life. And it's not just about being saved, like, you know, like getting, saying, the, saying, asking Jesus into your heart and then that's it, you know, then I can just, I don't know, kick back. But that you, you come into the church and you are at the very foot of the mountain and now it's your job to climb to the apex of this massive thing. And it will take your entire life, but the church is there to feed and sustain you. The church is going to instruct you. The church is going to give you all of the tools you need to accomplish all the work you have to do. And that was so intoxicating to me. The thought that I like that I could pray, that I could fast, I could go to confession, I could receive holy unction. I could the Eucharist was a, a medicine. It wasn't just a memorial. Um, all of these things. It was just overwhelming how appealing that was to me. And so that's what kept me in the church. And that, frankly, that's still, that's what keeps me going today. That, that, that absolute avalanche of grace that comes to the church to help us. Mm. So uh, two <clears throat> things that kind of came to mind as you were speaking, one on the continuity and one on the coherence. So I'll start with the coherence. Um, what struck me recently when I went to a Remembrance Day service it was very much a liturgy, uh, but the announcements kept on interjecting, as as you mentioned, and that was similar to a, a Protestant service, and it reminded me of that in in certain respects. And it was a very good Remembrance Day service. I mean, they actually spoke about God, and there were certain things that were kind of sacramental that we did, like taking our poppies off and laying them down, almost at this like altar to the soldiers who gave their lives, which was very moving. Um, but the way I thought about it, which I hadn't before, was in terms of uh, a game and playing the game versus the rehearsal of the game. And it seems like in a Protestant setting or in other settings like this Remembrance Day um, liturgy, there was the actual uh, performance or the playing of the game, so to speak, as well as the, the rehearsal and the practice, as it were, or the explicit um, commentary on we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do this which is very much like a rehearsal like a, a wedding rehearsal almost when you go through the different motions and so it what i've always really appreciated about orthodoxy is that once the liturgy begins there's no announcements there's no distractions there's no commentary on the actual game so to speak you just are immersed in it and you're playing and then at the end you have the comments about you know these are the announcements for the week or, or what have you but there is something very beautiful about being immersed in that movement that's uh very resting or restful and i think quite unique about orthodoxy but I, i'm curious like do you think that that's a, a helpful or accurate way to um, compare the two as as orthodoxy just being the game that you're playing versus some of these other liturgies that have the the rehearsal aspect mixed in. I think I think that's an I think that's an apt metaphor. Yeah, um, not and not in the way that like other people are just playing at church. They're they're working. They're doing things. But 
but in orthodoxy we don't break the fourth wall yeah you know, yeah we don't we don't ruin the spell that's being cast by the you know the beautiful hymns and the it, when you walk into a church it's meant to surround you and captivate you and when you break that you lose something um you know you everything that the church does is meant to draw you deeper into prayer and and when when you say now we're going to do this and now we're going to do this this is what this means it it destroys that it destroys all the the work that's been done to create this it's not magic but it feels magical you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and i think that i mean that breaking the fourth wall it does have this resonance with like postmodern philosophy of being conscious of yourself it's like when someone's writing a book and they'll say and i as the author i'm writing in this book like this there's this extra layer of self-consciousness which can be um kind of neurotic at times because you you, you want to lose yourself in something you don't want to conscious always be conscious of yourself but okay so then the continuity side um i'm curious how you would describe the continuity of the orthodox church because i think the sort of poster image is the Orthodox Church with this unbroken line, and it was sort of the only church at the beginning. And then as time progressed, these things broke off from it, like Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. But yeah, from the beginning, it was just Orthodoxy. Um, and I think there's like elements of truth to that. But I think that obviously, historically speaking, it is more complicated, but that's just me. So I'm curious how you would speak about the continuity of the, the church in a in a realistic fashion, but in in a faithful fashion. Sure. I find talking about the Orthodox Church as if it's the dog with the best pedigree very unhelpful. Uh, there has to be more to life than just, you know, who's your mom and dad kind of thing. And we lose something when we when like you look at that, like the tree, the branch theory thing, or even when people rail against the Roman Catholic Church that, oh, you know, they they left and they're the ones that split. And, you know, if you read a history book, that's it's not exactly true. And that all of these things are a complicated mess of the the accidents of history. And and we lost something in 1054. It, the loss was immeasurable. And, you know, we still feel that keenly to this day. Um, the continuity, I think, comes in the spirit of the church. And that's how I reconcile my friends and family who are not a part of the Orthodox Church, in that they possess a piece of this spirit of the church, that they are not completely bereft of, you know, the work that happened on Pentecost. They don't have it all, but they have a piece. And some churches have more pieces, and some of their pieces are bigger. Um, but the Orthodox Church is the only thing that has the whole, we, we have the whole, we don't just have a piece of it, we have it in its entirety. And um, that's really hard to qualify and quantify. And I think that that's why people tend to steer away from it. They like to say that the Catholic Church is bad. They like to say that the Protestant church is bad. They like to say that the Orthodox church is only good. 
and these are oversimplistic and untrue. Um, and maybe I'll get in trouble for saying these things. And I'm sorry if you get in trouble for me saying these things. But I think it's important that we not lie to ourselves and oversimplify things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like uh, Christ is the truth and the truth will set us free. So hopefully by following the truth, we will follow Christ. And I think it's helpful to have the notion that all things are one in God. And so the truth is never opposed to God. Um, it might challenge our present assumptions of who God is, but ultimately it's going to get us closer to God. And therefore, wherever we can find truth, it belongs to God. And so all truth is God's truth. It doesn't mean that always lead to the top of the summit. There's definitely ways that lead to hell and we can destroy our lives if we want to, but um, that's fundamentally all things that are true participate in God, which is such a beautiful um, aspect of like ancient Christianity. And so with the continuity, let me ask you a question and you can let me know if you think it's accurate. But my sense is that we have in the early church is a, a unity that arises out of diversity. And you have these different regions where Christianity is bubbling up and it's this somewhat organic process where people are speaking to each other about the gospel. And over time, these different regions orient themselves and gather themselves together and become what is eventually the Orthodox church. But it's to some degree more of a bottom up unity rather than something that, that just sort of comes down from on high. The thing that kind of complicates that is that obviously Christ is the one that begins the church and then he passes it on to the disciples. And so there is originally obviously a top-down movement and then the spirit is leading the church throughout time. So it's not just a human endeavor, um, but it seems that at least initially there is quite a bit of diversity and it takes time for unity to emerge. And in that sense, unity is an achievement that occurs throughout time, at least in the sense that we think of the Orthodox Church as a unified body uh, today. What would you uh, have to say on that? Yeah, I think that that's helpful to, to, to think about it in terms of a bottom-up and a top-down. I like that. That when you have things that are fermenting, you have various local councils that are happening, you have all kinds of uh, uh, grassroots level stuff happening. And even, even when you think about it, people love to rail about uh, Nicaea and how, you know, Constantine and there's this shift that happens and, uh, you know, God wasn't there. It was a, an imperial thing. No, it wasn't. Yeah, actually, it was a, it, it was a number of local churches congealing. And then a consensus was made on several things, and that became crystallized. And they keep repeating that over and over and over again, this sort of congealing of local thought into what was defining about orthodoxy. You know, that, and, and that's, you can, when you read through things like the Church Fathers, and you come across the truth, it's the truth because it's the consensus of the church, not because it's what John Chrysostom said, you know, even though St. John is St. John, it's, it rings true and it hangs together with the rest of what the Orthodox Church teaches. It, it forms this magisterium of teaching that is inviolate in that there's nothing out of place in it. 
you know, even though it may look messy sometimes, it all hangs together. Um, I think where it gets tricky is that we have this really wonderful bottom-up movement that's happening and we're building this, you know, fortress or whatever you want to call it for for our purposes. And, and this is happening and it's all good and beautiful. And then we have the passage of time. And when we come and look back on this, we interpret it differently. We interpret it incorrectly. And so it becomes then we read through a lens where everything is monolithic. And that's not the case. We lose all sense of variety. We lose all sense of variation of any kind of um, what's a good example like liturgies, for instance, you know, a lot of people are, are, you know, Eastern liturgy only divine liturgy only. Well, you know, St. John Maximovich, St. John of Shanghai in San Francisco talks about how the, what does he say? He, he was so clever. He said, the ancient Western liturgies are older than most of our heresies. And which is just a, a damning thing when you think about it. And, and yet people will tend to look back on that and say, oh, it's Western? Well, let's, that's no good. We can't use that. Even though it's, it's ancient and it has a beautiful patrimony that we need to honor. So I, I think the passage of time can do a number on that interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it makes me think too of like, if you want to have like a naturalistic viewpoint on it in terms of species that evolve over time that the orthodox church maybe you could say this that the orthodox church has continuity with the past and it does go back right to christ and it is still um presenting the same gospel of christ and that is intact but along the way in ancient Christianity, there was lots of different experiments that were run. There was lots of little species that kind of emerged, little Christianities, and they sort of fizzled out over time. But uh, the what became the Orthodox Church is a species that is is still alive and active, and you can go to an Orthodox Church. And does it look the exact same as uh, what the apostles were doing? Well, no. Did they have this full iconostasis? No. Does that mean it's like in opposition? I don't think so. I think that it's the same as a tree. And I mean, we don't always use this imagery of a tree, but like if a tree is planted, the seed looks different than the mature tree. And it would be wrong to go to the mature tree and like start chopping off branches to say, well, we're returning it to the seed. We want to be the exact same as what uh, was originally there, which is sometimes the um, motivation in, in certain Christian circles to kind of go back to the, the seed. Um, but again, I'm just curious, like, would you think that that's a viable metaphor in talking about the continuity of the church as this, this animal, as it were, that's, that's still with us, whereas some of the other ones uh, went extinct? Yeah, uh, there, there is, again, I think it comes down to the spirit of the church. Um, you know, you, you hear people say, well, this is the liturgy of the apostles. Well, it's not. This is the, you know, this is the, this is the church of the apostles, but it looks different. It smells different. It, it uh, walks different. And yet the spirit that animates it is exactly the same. And that's the Holy Spirit. And when you, 
when you engage in all kinds of weird and wonderful liturgical archaeology, like you were saying, in order to get back to some vaunted, uh, I don't know, year zero, it, it's a it's a game of it, it's a game of losses. You're not you're not going to come out ahead uh, because of the growth that has happened, because of all of this grassroots stuff that has happened, because of all the evolution that's happened. The spirit works in the church with the people, you know, because it is a divine human organism. Christ is at the head and we are the body. And we've worked together for this long to create this beautiful thing. And to then turn around and say, we need to change it so that it's like it was. It would be like if I looked at my daughter, my daughter just turned 13 three days ago. And I would look at her and I would say, you're, you're lovely, but I, I really liked you when you were two. So we're going to go back to that. And I'm going to treat you like you're two now. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't make sense. Um, same child, but at a different stage of development. No less beautiful, no less exactly who she always has been. Um, and yet there's value in it. And probably, uh, yeah, I think precisely because of the experiences that she's had makes it, uh, they become a part of her. And in the same way, everything that the church has been through, the good things and the bad things, make her what she is and we cannot devalue that yeah yeah well put um and i think with the whole eastern western thing to me it does kind of seem like a like a heuristic or a mental shortcut that people employ in the sense that in the present day people appreciate eastern orthodoxy if they're part of the orthodox church obviously and then they don't necessarily appreciate some of the things that are of present day in the western church but it can't be just for all time that like all Western things are bad and all Eastern things are good. So it does really remind me of a, a mental shortcut that people, I mean, we, we fall prey to that in all, in all sorts of things because life is complicated and we want to simplify it. And sometimes our shortcuts are inaccurate. Always, always. So were there any challenges for you in joining the Orthodox church, either initially or along the road that you had to overcome? Um, I would say that the, uh, initially I had two challenges to overcome. The first one was my wife because she was not, uh, not that she's a challenge to have over, been overcome, but that she did not have the same perspective on the church that I did. Um, it was a great cause of friction for us for, for many months. And we eventually reached a point where we were able to communicate. And I think God really worked in our marriage a, a miracle to bring us to a point where we could enter the church together. So that was that was the first one, was, was uh, waiting for my wife to kind of be wooed by the church. And the second one was this feeling of loss, that I had a life, I had a beautiful life in the church that I came from. I had many friends. I had many beautiful experiences. I was baptized in that church. Um, 
I went to school to become a pastor. I, I was confirmed over and over again by everyone I knew that this was, this was good and right, and it was the thing I was supposed to do. It made sense. It felt good. It, uh, uh, all the roads were leading here. And then it was cut off by, by something strange and marvelous, and I don't regret it. But I had come to this point and learned all of these things and had all of these experiences. And I remember sitting, uh, we were sitting at the old spaghetti factory and, and we were having dinner and laughing and talking with, with a bunch of people from the, from the Orthodox Church. And I turned to one of them and I said, I'm afraid to start over again. And it was a real moment of vulnerability for me because I, I was letting myself understand for the first time that I was standing on a precipice and I had, there was nothing there behind me was solid ground. I knew what I, what I had, I knew where I was going. I knew it was all planned out. And now there's nothing just thin air. And, uh, it took a long time for me to be able to look back on that and say, no, that's not how that worked, even though it was, it appeared that way, that everything that happened to me happened for a reason, and that everything that happened to me brought me to this place. And I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And God is doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing in my life. Um, I ha it's funny, I had this conversation with several people who are in the process of converting to the church now. And they're, they have the same concern, you know, like, what, what, what do I do with my life? What do I do with all the experiences that I had? It's all for nothing. I say it's not. And you won't see that yet. You won't see it now. But you'll look back in five years. You'll look back in 10 years and you'll see the trajectory, the arc of your life. And you'll see how God was working all along to do exactly what he's doing right now. Um, I think perspective was really the thing that I lacked and probably still what I'm lacking. You know, I don't understand where I am fully right now, but in 10 years, I will. Um, those are the two big ones, especially especially the, the lack of perspective. I, it was a it was truly a terrifying moment for me to to come to that realization. Yeah, and I imagine uh, not without <clears throat> good reason in the sense that you had built up a network at that point and you had a career. And so you really are going out into uncharted territory, which does produce anxiety. I don't think there's any two ways around that. Um, but I think what you said is super helpful advice because God willing, our lives aren't over and we'll continue to go on. And uh, surely there's things we know today that we didn't know five years ago. And so if we were able to project out forward five years, there's probably things we'll learn about ourselves today and it doesn't you know you don't even need to know what's going on today necessarily to um be open to it be making sense at a future date i was curious do you have any sense why there's so many guys that are interested in orthodoxy and make the leap or start going in that direction before their wives do oh Nothing that's not horribly pat, you know, <laughs> I've, I've, I, this is something I think about often because so it's very rarely that, that, um, 
couples come to the church and and both of them see it and think, yep, this is it. You know, usually someone has, there's a problem somewhere, you know. Um, I think you're, I think the reason that more men are drawn to it is because it demands something of you. And as men, and I don't want to speak for all men, and I'm not a manly man, um, you know, I'm not a, uh, I'm not like a bodybuilder or a monster truck driver or anything, but I, I, I truly believe that we need purpose as men and that we need discipline. And the church has that in spades. Uh, like, you know, like I said before, that that's part of why that's what kept me in the church was the discipline was the, the tools to do the work. Um, you see this phenomenon all the time in in U.S. prisons, the the uh, the rise of Islam, because so many of these men who are completely undisciplined in their life encounter this. Uh, I don't want to call it an organization, an organism, and it gives them discipline. It requires something of them. They have to fast. They have to pray five times a day. They have to act in a certain way. They have to hold to a certain set of beliefs. It's not wishy-washy. And, and I think as men, that really appeals to us that we have structure and discipline. We have something to do. When I pray, I cross myself. I do prostrations. I receive sacraments. It's physical. It's real. I think as I think as men... And this, it doesn't mean that women can't also feel this way too, but I think especially as men, we are drawn to those kinds of things. And, and then, and then our, our wives come after because they, they see us and they trust us. And then they eventually see the value in what we're doing. Um, that's my number one piece of advice to couples who come in and, and the man is gung-ho and the, the woman, the wife is, is not. Uh, the advice is don't, don't use this to prove yourself. You use this. Let her see, or him, if, if it's the other way around. Let your spouse see. Let your parents see how Christ is working in your life, how he's changing you and transforming you, how the church is this force for good in your life and something that you haven't had before. You know, instead of running your mouth, use your heart. Hmm. Yeah, good advice. And would you, um, more broadly, if someone is interested in orthodoxy and maybe they've been to a couple of liturgies or, or not, but they're inquiring and interested in learning more, what would be your advice to someone in that camp? So, uh, sorry, you kind of dropped out there. Can you repeat that question? Yeah, absolutely. So if someone's interested in orthodoxy, what would be your advice to them? Oh, well, I mean, there are so many different circumstances that you can find yourself in. Uh, perhaps your, uh, Perhaps you're a teenager and your parents don't want you to go to church or perhaps you're, oh, there are so many different circumstances. What would be my advice? If somebody's interested in the Orthodox Church, step one is go to church. So many people fall in love with the Orthodox Church as an idea and I can't blame them. 
there's much about it that's attractive, the continuity, the worship, the apostolicity, the you name it. You know, uh, there are lots of things on paper that make the Orthodox Church sound good. But if you can't stand the liturgy, then why would you go there? So if you are interested in the church, go to church and go to as much church as you can. See a liturgy, see matins, see vespers, stick around for a fasting season, show up to Holy Week, go to as many services as you can, um, immerse yourself in the life of the church, you know, fast as best you can, say the Jesus prayer, um, it, 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 do as much as you can without injuring yourself, which is different for everybody. So you have to do this in consultation with somebody, whether it's a priest or a friend you trust or, or you know, someone, someone who has your best interests in mind and someone who knows the road and knows where they're leading you. Um, but yeah, there, there comes a point where you just have to jump in. You can't, it can't be a mental exercise anymore. And, and would you say the possible danger with um, reading in separation from attending an actual church is that in, in books, like there's two things that come to mind for me. Uh, one is that usually the people that are writing books are extremely articulate. And that's not always the case in every single parish of the different priests, because there's lots of different people out there that are serving. And then the other thing is that usually in books, if they're modern books, um, and maybe old ones too, they're dealing with ideals because it's really hard to actually write something and deal with all the particulars because it would just be extremely boring probably. And also um, you're gonna narrow your market if you're just talking about all of these really nitty gritty things. And so usually you're gonna have this sort of idealized version of what the church could be or should be, but not necessarily um, the messiness of it. And so I think that by, if you're just reading and you're not actually attending a liturgy, what can happen without knowing is your expectations start to climb higher and higher and higher and then you go to a liturgy and it's maybe underwhelming or wow these people are annoying and you know obviously you're there too and you've all got your own sins but those are the things that stand out in my mind when i think about the the possible dangers of reading and exclusion from going to liturgy i don't want to denigrate reading because i think reading is awesome but it's like you need to no. you need to pair it with the the physical experience would you have anything to add on that front well yeah I, I think the number one factor in conflict in all our lives is unchecked expectation right in marriages in friendships any anything it's normally that you have an expectation that hasn't been met in some form or another now if you form unrealistic expectations about a community it's not going to go well for you because of course nothing is going to live up to your ideal it's not going to be good enough. It's not going to be uh, the, the way that you want it to be. Um, and as we see this now, especially with all the different strains of internet orthodoxy that are, are coming out, people who, uh, people who punch certain issues harder than others, and then they go to a church and think, well, they're not as serious as I want to be because you know the, the priest isn't preaching about this and the people don't think in this certain way, this you know, extremely boutique understanding of Orthodox Christianity. It's not the right flavor. 
Um, we are a very incarnate faith in that we use our bodies to worship. We use our, we use everything, you know. Uh, and if you read and form these opinions, you're not getting the full picture. And you may even be getting the incorrect picture, right? Depending on what you're reading and depending on who you talk to, depending on whose YouTube channel you haunt, uh, it, it won't work out for you. It won't go well for you. So it's very, it's very, very important to get messy, get, get into it, you know, roll up your sleeves and put your hands in and do the work. Um, you, you won't, you won't get anywhere by reading books. Uh, uh, like a great example is I, I used to do a lot of woodworking. Um, and I came to the point in this hobby where I realized what I, what I truly enjoyed doing was reading books about woodworking. <laughs> I had so many books about woodworking and I, I spent so much time reading them and drawing, you know, blueprints and doing the egg-headed stuff. And I didn't ever get out into the shop. I never built anything. Well, how many times can you read about cutting dovetails? It doesn't make you better at cutting dovetails. Reading about ecumenical councils or toll houses or any God knows what else isn't going to make you a better Christian. It's not. It's going to give you lots of stuff to do the work, you know, and I, I, again, Max, like you said, not to denigrate reading. Reading is, reading is a cornerstone of the Christian life. It's wonderful to learn and we should never stop learning, but we should definitely start doing so that we can use all the stuff we're learning. So, yes. Yeah. It, yeah. I was curious just to drill down for one more um, second into like internet orthodoxy, because I've had a number of people on and asked them the same question about what their advice would be. And a lot of people do say, be careful on the internet, um, watch what you're consuming. And you mentioned some of these niche versions of orthodoxy that will focus on a particular aspect. And then when say the priest on Sunday or whoever else doesn't mention that particular thing and they don't, taste that flavor in the parish, it can um, create a bit of dissonance for them. So if you could, uh, if, if you're brave, feeling brave with me, if, if you can specify what are the, some of the common errors, as it were, like what, what should people be careful of? I'm not, I'm not talking about in terms of channels or anything like that specific, but just in terms of what can people overemphasize or underemphasize? Okay, I, I guess I'll preface this by saying it's always dangerous to live on the margins of any community. When you find, we define the church as this, is the sheepfold, right? It's the sheep pen. And inside is the shepherd and, and the sheep, and we're safe. And not, nothing gets in. And I mean, we can leave, but it, we're safe inside the pen. Um the closer you get to the fence, if you're sitting on the fence, something might pick you off. Um, and so people start getting into these fringe ideas, uh, which can be dangerous. There, 
I think probably the most dangerous one today would be the elder. Uh, this uh, this thing, and it it doesn't it doesn't affect everyone, but many many people come into orthodoxy and are consumed by the idea that they need to find a spiritual father. And this is this normally does not take the shape of the parish priest, who, who is the spiritual father of that community and de facto is your spiritual father if you're a member of that community. Uh, they normally search online, or maybe they will travel great distances to monasteries in order to seek this person out. And they want to, they have this kind of self-aggrandizing view of themselves as a quasi-monastic. And that's very dangerous because unless you're a monastic, this life is not going to be a healing experience for you. It's going to be a very, very traumatizing, difficult thing. Um, I've spoken with people who have gone on a search like this and they go to a monastery and they go to confession with an elder and they confess their sins, which is good, but then they receive a monastic penance. And so you may end up coming away, no communion for six months no communion for a year, you know, something, something unbearably harsh that you would never get from a parish priest. You would get it at a monastic community because they would not expect their monastics to commit the same kinds of sins. They would not, because they have a completely different life. So I would say that that's probably the number one most dangerous thing is that people, like I said, men who are looking for discipline, who are looking for a figure in their life to guide them and help them, and they go too far in that in that search and it mm -hmm. it's it's it can be incredibly traumatizing definitely and, and, and you see that you see that sort of in the branding of certain orthodox offerings as well that there people stylize the church as being more muscular or tougher and i mean the church is is you know, adamantine, it's unbreakable, it's it's inviolable because it has Christ as its head and it's animated by the Holy Spirit. But it's not it's not a tough guy. It's not the MMA. It's not like that. Um, and people transpose these things onto the church, I don't know, in an effort to make it more palatable, in an effort to make it fit their own narrative or their own character for whatever reason. Um, and it becomes toxic. <clears throat> Definitely. Um, so just in case we haven't gotten in trouble yet, I'm going to ask you one more question just to make sure that we do get in trouble. No, I'm kidding. But um, can you talk about toll houses as well? Because that's another one of these things that sometimes comes up that people can be extremely fascinated in and spend a lot of time, I think, worrying about that um, is, again, sort of on the fringe. Sure. So I guess we'll start out by just explaining what those are. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Toll House theory is written about by several church fathers, and most famously recently by uh, Father Seraphim Rose, maybe the Blessed Seraphim Rose, maybe Saint Seraphim Rose, depending who you talk to. And he, it's essentially this theory that when you die and your soul departs from your body, it goes through a journey on the on its way to heaven, it has to pass through uh, a number of toll houses where where a toll is exacted, 
And uh, there are demons there that are tempting the soul and there are angels there refreshing the soul. And perhaps if you're holy enough, the mother of God is there to strengthen you and guide you. And, 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 uh, and certainly this imagery is present in some of our hymns and some of our prayers in the church, you know, and even in the Catholic church, right? You know, the uh, Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, right? So there are Catholics that pray that 50 times a day. So it's a very real part of our theology, um, but it's dangerous because we don't know what happens to the soul after death. More ink has been spilled on this subject that, you know, and it's wasted because we don't know. There, it's all conjecture. Um, I'm teaching a class about this right now, and this is one of the topics that in, in the world of theology in the church, you have theologumena. Uh, things that are said about God, right? It's a fancy Greek word that means things that are spoken about God. And then you have dogma, which are inviolable truths that the church holds and will not change. And there are no dogmatic statements about the soul after death, at least in terms of toll houses. This is all just conjecture. And people latch on to this, I think, because they like... Um, there's a there's a real thirst for the transcendent in our society and for um, knowing that there's something beyond this life. And if the if the church can tell them this is what happens to you after you die, that's a that's a it's a real temptation to kind of go all in on that. Um, especially for folks that maybe have dabbled in witchcraft or or the occult, or or whatever, or maybe even people who have had a bland, faithless existence, and this is all new and exciting for them, it can be a snare. So toll houses, are they bad? No. Should you, you know, make t-shirts about it? No. There, there's a there's got to be a happy balance. You know, read Father Seraphim Rose, be instructed, be uplifted, uh, and don't write anything on the internet about it. So... And if someone is looking for more of the transcendent in their lives, which I think is absolutely a need in this time, because we're living in an increasingly secular society, where would you point people? Oh, um, well, if you like listening to three and a half hour long podcasts, the Lord of Spirits on Ancient Faith Radio is very interesting and extremely profitable and quite entertaining. Uh, as far as books go, read the classics of American Orthodoxy. Read books by Father Alexander Schmemann. You know, understand what the liturgy is. Grow a deep and abiding love for the liturgical life of the church. Read, uh, there's another book, a series of books put out by uh, St. Vladimir Seminary. It's the Rainbow series. All right, Thomas Sopko. Yeah, uh, four books about like the worship doctrine. Uh, you know, it splits the life of the church up into these four little volumes. And the, the information there is so dense and so rich. Um, you could read those once a year for the rest of your life and you would still reap amazing benefits out of it. So um, stick to the basics, <laughs> stick to the basics. 
Well, that is a wonderful note to end on, Father Ryan. So I want to thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thank you, Max. God bless you. Hey guys, thanks for checking out that episode of the Orthodox Christian Podcast. If you have a question about Orthodox Christianity, there is a form link in the video description that you can check out. And if you got some value from this video, please pass it on to one friend or family member. And in the meantime, I hope they have a peaceful week. Take care.